Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Greetings, dear listeners. This is the latest episode of The Remnant Podcast with uh, yours truly, Jonah Goldberg. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you by Zip Recruiter. We'll get more to that in a little bit. First of all, just some quick housekeeping. If you um, listen to this at National Review Online, you're a great and good American, but you could be an even better American if you go and subscribe at iTunes. What are the other ones? Stitcher. All, Stitcher, all those things, and subscribe. That would be great. If you could leave a comment, that would be a fantastic if you like this podcast, if you don't like this podcast, why are you putting yourself through this in episode 21? I don't know. So, but don't leave a comment if you hate this thing, because that would be mean. Anyway, beyond that, uh, we're going to get right to it in what could be considered one of the great worlds colliding episodes uh, in podcast history. I have with me today uh, my colleague from the GLOP podcast, which stands for Goldberg, Long, and Padoritz. I guess technically it should be GLAP, but we call it GLOP because of GLOP culture. I have one John Padores. Welcome, John. Well, thank you, Jonah. I'm not going to get into a lengthy introduction for John because people who listen to this probably know who he is already, but he's the editor of Commentary Magazine. They, As he puts it on the Commentary Podcast, another podcast which I am not part of and occasionally throws shade my way. What is what is your rap? Commentary is the intellectual magazine of... It's the 73-year-old... <laughs> magazine of intellectual probity, political analysis, and cultural criticism from a conservative perspective. Yes, and it's excellent, and it's probably the best it's ever been, or at least it's best it's been in, in many, many years. I don't want to cast aspersions at, at previous regimes there for, for many and sundry reasons, but it's great to have you here, John. Well, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm uh, as you know, Jonah, I am, um, I'm, I'm in a state of shock at the uh, grandeur of the facilities here at the uh, American Enterprise Institute where we are taping this a uh, you know a long time paragon of the conservative movement um, I was recently in uh, at the end of December I was at Versailles uh-huh. uh, in 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 uh, had to wait online for two hours to get into Versailles with my family in the cold which was not the case here but I would say that this is m- marginally grander than Versailles <laughs> well one thing I do ask, and I do this solely for the sake of Jack Butler, who's not on a mic right now, but he is in the room. Please don't yell, oh, piss boy. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. 
That's right. Anyway, it is um, it is quite quite a this is a a startlingly uh, glorious facility. So, and Thank we're you, sitting here in an incredibly comfortable uh, radio studio. My our radio studio at at commentary is literally five feet wide. So. Uh, I know I've I been there. We did a glop. Yes, I, we did a glop there, and it was uh, five feet wide. Yeah, it was thrilling. So yeah. <laughs> um, so what I like about having you on is that first of all, I have carte blanche to stop you filibustering. I know you think I filibuster more than you do. I'll leave that to listeners to decide. This is a fascinating study. Somebody should do a PhD study and see who actually speaks more on the glop podcast because Jonah is convinced that I talk too much and i am totally sure that he has more time on but mic than i do. I, I will say in my defense that except one, i host so i read the ads you do read the ads and but one of the reasons why i do my um my little set piece rants on glop is because that's the only way i know i can get out what i have to say because otherwise uh you're gonna sort of bigfoot and step on me and it's it's different you know on the commentary podcast I do enjoy every now and then if later we're gonna at the end of the show we're gonna talk about uh, the various uh, remnant podcast bingo cards and drinking games that have proliferated out there among the uh <laughs> fan culture but if I was gonna make one for the commentary podcast one of one of the boxes would definitely be I'm trying to talk less, which you say on us every single one um anyway. So for listeners who don't know, both John and I are from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and uh, John's a, a smidgen older than I am, but we both come from basically a lost world, right? I mean, it's just not what it once was. And John grew up in, you know, I grew up in a pre- pretty political family, but John grew up in a famously political family. His father was Norman Podores, is um, And still is. It, well, it still is. Um, <laughs> sort of like that old sound. 88 like, years and going. Yeah. And and his mother is Midge Dector. 90 and going. 90 and going. I didn't know she was older yeah. than that. Wow. She's three years older. Wow. Good for her. And uh, so long-time listeners of this podcast know that one of my intellectual obsessions is the use and abuse of the phrase neoconservative. So the first question coming out of the box is, do you consider yourself a neoconservative? And, and, by, and if you do, what do you mean by it? For many, many years... I objected to the term neoconservative to describe myself because it had a very specific meaning once, which is that it was former liberals who who went right in the late 60s for various reasons. There are four or five different events that sort of uh, – events or political trends or ideological trends that led this group of people to move – from either the moderate liberal to hard left and then move sort of to the center and then onward to the right. And I certainly was not part of that. I grew up as the child of, you know, two prominent neoconservatives. But by the time I was 12 or 13 or something like that, my ideological predilections were basically what they are now. So I don't really think... That the term, to the extent that it's a descriptive term in intellectual history, which it is, it does not apply to me. And, I, feel, I smell a butt coming. Well, here's so the speak. butt. So <laughs> that's what she said, yeah. as you would say. <laughs> um, the butt is that there, there, there is a difference between the kind of conservatism that commentary 
for example, embodies or that I've been where I've stood at commentary or the Weekly Standard, which I helped to start or in my years at at other uh, places, that is, is somewhat different from the conservatism that is, say, embodied by Na- the National Review and its history or, you know, sort of Reagan conservatism or something like that. And it's a little hard uh, to describe. A lot of it is that there is maybe a larger literary, uh, I would say, cultural frame of reference that uh, is not exactly the same. So the cultural reference, I think, of conservatism is often, when we use the term culture, we're referring to sort of social conservatism, that they embody a a worldview that is often uh, Christian or Catholic in nature, that uh, views the world through a certain type of prism that is um, maybe somewhat suspicious of modernity or hostile to the effects of modernity on the culture. And the kind of conservatism that I'm part of is much more uh, is more comfortable, less uh, condemnatory, let's say, of the social position of the United States as it evolves. And more interested in culture from a literary historical perspective, it's, if that makes sense. You know, it makes sense. But all right, so I don't want to beat a dead horse. But part part, part of the problem is is I think that has more to do with the fact that the neocons you're thinking of come from a certain 1940s to 1960s New York milieu, right? Or the the partisan review crowd, right? right? And the early commentary where it was much more radical, right? And But my problem is, is that when you – anytime you try to nail down – it's like nailing jello to a wall, right? Anytime you nail down what neoconservatism is now or as an ideological constant, it kind of falls apart. So when you're saying that, that, that this sort of – these sort of uh, traditional conservatism – that is skeptical of modernity, right? And I think there is something, obviously, in conservatism about that. But, I mean, when I think of somebody who was skeptical of modernity, I mean, I immediately think of Irving Kristol, who embraced Leo Strauss, right, and had all sorts of problems with um, the common culture and modern culture, and it was one of the reasons why he made common cause with sort of Christian conservatives on a lot of things. And it just, it seems to me that every time you try to, and so, you know, which you haven't touched on, but one of the things that you'll often hear, particularly on this this boisterous platform you may have heard of called Twitter, um, you will find that uh, neoconservatives are often considered synonymous with Jews, right. spelt with four O's and three Z's. And, and yet some of the most famous neoconservatives, many of whom came to prominence thanks to Commentary Magazine, were not Jewish. I mean, Gene Kirkpatrick is probably the, probably the most single influential Neocon essay in human history, and and she's not Jewish. Right. Bill Bennett wasn't Jewish when right. he came. Pat out. Moynihan, before his before he sort of left the precincts of neoconservatism, was the most prominent neoconservative when he was at the UN before he became a senator and realized that he could not occupy this position on the right of the Democratic Party and survive in New York State as a senator and sort of shifted to the left. He yeah, voted so, left and talked right. Yeah, well, he yeah. talked more and more right. There was a period of about 10 years where he wasn't talking yeah. right at all. And then as his position solidified in the Senate, he then got more comfortable returning to a certain type of, oddly enough, a kind of more more 
socially conservative positioning than I would say the neoconservatives hold. Let me put it this way. One one thing I guess I'm sort of alighting or like d- dancing around is that for much of modern conservatism, the the not the original sin, but the great stain on America and the great cultural crisis of America is abortion. And I would say that's simply not the neo the neoconservatives are not obsessed with abortion. Well, I think that's okay. So that that's a that, that's what I would right? say is a generalization that. That the notion that America is existing in a state of social and cultural crisis because of this stain d- is not endemic to the, though there are neoconservatives, if neoconservatives still exist, who are pro-life. Father that, Newhouse was one of the original four considered in the Steinfeld's book one of the archetypal neocons, and pretty sure that Father Newhouse was anti-abortion. You right? Know no, I mean? no, of course. But I'm just saying uh, that's the weird part of this is that is that it's just not. You know, the the uh, the patriotism that helped animate neoconservatism, this idea that the left had turned anti-American and that this was a great crime, a great intellectual crime to be anti-Americanism, anti-American in the late 60s when you were facing down Soviet communism, when capitalism had provided so many, you know, had provided so much gain to so many people and that uh, the kind of uh, cultural and social bounty that the United States represented was being slighted because that that patriotism, that couldn't be 100 percent echoed or felt on the socially conservative right, I would say, because sure. of abortion, right? So, so the oddly enough, though, what we what we would now say, you know, if you, if you use the term nationalism, you're now sort of moving into Trump territory, right? But so the neoconservatives were kind of a nationalists of en la lettre in the in the late '60s and early '70s, simply because everybody was hostile to the American experiment. Right. People on the right were hostile on the grounds that the country was, you know, becoming a cesspool of immorality, and people on the left were hostile because they believed America was a force for evil in the world and and retarding progressive growth and and being imperialist and all of that. So I would say that neoconservatism is a is a is a term that describes something at a point in time. I'm now, as we stand in sort of twenty. 16, 2017, 20, 2018, and this, uh, you know, entire, this period in which we're redefining all of these terms because the American political system took a turn that nobody knows. I, I, I think that there is still some kind of distinction between where I stand and where some more conservative people stand, which is to say, I'm worried that there is going to be – it's going to be very the, – the extent to which people on the right decide that uh, Trump – Donald Trump will further the political gains that they wish to see, that the uh, intellectual side of conservatism will need to bend – to the political power of the right and sort of be its handmaiden as opposed to standing somewhat apart. Um, I don't know if that's it's, it. It means that the neo the neo conservatives, all eight of us, are in a position where we're going to say, you know, I'm sorry, but you know, we're not. We don't follow. You know, we don't cut our our our. You know, we don't we don't uh, tr- trim our head, trim our sails, or cut our clothing to fit the political fashions of the moment. And I'm worried that a lot of conservatism may go in that direction. 
Well, you're on the right podcast for that sentiment. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But But I don't know that that's neoconservative. That just may be just the question of whether or not being somewhat apart from the mainstream conservative movement – is now is now going to be defined in this way as where where are you going to stand on the fact that while while Donald Trump and his administration may do a lot of things that you support that you don't want to be its handmaiden for various reasons or you don't want to be you know in its service for various reasons Matt Continetti who I know was on this show before I was just over uh, at his office, and he's doing a book on American political history. And he had asked me a couple months ago if I had copies of columns that my father had written mm-hmm. uh, for the New York Post in the 1980s. And I said I hadn't. I didn't know that he had. And he managed to secure them from this from Tom Jeffers, who had written a biography of my father. And he said he had been reading through them, and what was so startling about them was how hostile they were to Reagan. Mm-hmm. So he'd written the most, mostly in the second Reagan term, and it was basically Reagan's appeasing the Soviets, right, right, right. Reagan's giving into this, Reagan's giving to that, Reagan's giving to the other thing, and you know, one 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 forgets that the the general intellectual posture on the right, and I think this was true of National Review also, which was of course Buckley was a friend of Reagan's, and all this, it was still you weren't supposed to just give in, get you know, yeah. be a be a cheerleader. For in fact, part of your intellectual obligation was to uh, draw the lines and say you're going perilously close to the line of betraying your standards. Now we look at Reagan now, and we would say, well, how could you do better than that? But you know, commentary itself, as a newly minted publication, sort of on the right in the early '70s, one of the things that was its defining quality was relentless. Attacks on Nixon and Kissinger for detente, not for not for right, right. you know. So I think that is the intellectual challenge, and I know you and I've talked about this a lot. I mean, the intellectual challenge of our time is remaining intellectually honest, right? And so it's funny, you know. At National Review, we talk about our history, about uh, and our relationship with past Republican presidents, and it's a very storied one. I mean, we were vicious on Eisenhower. We had a very complicated relationship with Nixon. Nixon hated the Buckleyite right, said that they were more dangerous than the left. We agonized about whether or not to endorse Reagan at various times. Yeah. And sometimes we – I don't think we did endorse him in the first primary. And and I think that is a very old story on the right because it used to be that the right itself, the intellectual right, was itself kind of a remnant, right? It was a little removed from everyday politics. The Republican Party was not necessarily synonymous with conservatism and the Democratic Party was not necessarily synonymous with liberalism. Right. It was more complicated and more checkerboarded than that. And it seems to me that a lot of these problems have to do with the problems of of the right's success in the last 20 years where we now have a conservatism industry and you know Fox is a big part of that, but also a lot of the web stuff is a part of that. And for a lot of every, and as we become more polarized, and there are all sorts of reasons why we get more polarized, there is this assumption that, which we saw a lot of under Bush, that intellectual organs really are supposed to be, you know, sort of third-party adjuncts, sort of play the role that political parties used to play, and that we're supposed to be the explainers and defenders of when our party, when it's in power, and attackers on the party that's out of power. And no one really has any muscle memory about how to go back to the days with, with commentary. Right. But it's funny. You brought up your, your dad and how strident he was against uh, Reagan. I remember you know, my old boss was Ben Wattenberg, who was very proud of the fact that he was once called Ronald Reagan's favorite Democrat. And Ben would 
tell me stories about your dad where – and I'm sure there's – there are footnotes all over here and asterisks all over here. <laughs> but, you know, your dad was one of the le- last Titan sort of neocons to actually move right. I mean Irving had gone maybe, what, 10 years earlier or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and he would say about how – like, and so your dad had this passion of the converted. And, and Ben would say how he would get phone calls from your dad saying, did you know – what the friggin' commies did at Cat and Forest, you know, to the, you know, all that kind of stuff, because he was all worked up in it. And I think anti-communism was a huge part of neoconservatism, right? And so all these liberals, once it got in their head how they'd been on the wrong side, they were just so hardcore about it. Meanwhile, but that, but, but, but this sort of gets to my problem, and we'll get off neoconservatism after this. But you know, during the Gulf War period, during the Bush presidency, neoconservatism basically became synonymous with bagel-snarfing warmongers, right? You know, that we were just – that neocons just wanted war. It was synonymous with Hawk and all that kind of stuff. And the problem with that is – and it was so different from the National Review conservatism, which was so much – you know, Barry Goldwater wanted to lob nukes through the Kremlin window, and our position in National Review wasn't wasn't containment. It was rollback. Yeah. So the idea that National Review wasn't hawkish on communism was always sort of ridiculous, yeah. right? And and so my point about neoconservatism is, is that most of the founders, with the exception of William F. Buckley, were all basically former liberals. And, you know, Irving gets all this crap and Norman gets this crap for being, you know, former liberals or socialists and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Whitaker Chambers was a communist spy. Yeah. Max Eastman was worked, was one of Trotsky's best friends. You can go down this long list of yeah. the founders of National Review, and they were far more serious communists mm-hmm. than Irving or yeah. or anybody who gets labeled that way. Yeah, well, Irving and the the the, the first neocon. There's two gen, not not to get like ridiculously hair splitting in the you know where else like but the history here? of the Franks. <laughs> you know, it's like reading some. You know, the with Merovingian, the first Merovingians versus the second Merovingians. But so there was Important a generation of the first generation of neoconservatives who were Irving Crystal and Nathan Glazer and Daniel Bell. They were they were all college Trotskyists. They were college trots, Trotskyists. Right. They were tro- at City College. They were all together at City College and they were all Trotskyists. My dad's like 10 years younger. Right. So he was never a Trotskyist. He was right. never a communist. He was kind and, – and the most – oddly, not to discuss the intellectual history of my father, but his book, Making It, which is one of the great American autobiographies, was re-released this year, uh, last year, oddly by New York Review of Books, which is a was a very strange juxtaposition. But I reread it. Uh, I hadn't read it in 25, 30 years and I reread it. Uh, one of the great questions about making it was why it was so hostily received when it came out because it was said it was vulgar. It was a vulgar celebration of American success and all this. And it was it's anything but, actually. It's quite rueful about uh, what success might mean and what it means to pursue success, what it means about your character and all that. So that never – it struck a weird note. So I reread the book – and it's very right wing. That is the funny thing about making it, which was written in 1967 before my father took this political turn, right? Which happened really starting in the next year. But the book, the last part of the book, is all about how he finds discomfort in the way in which intellectuals, New York intellectuals, view the United States, which he thinks is they are about which they are insufficiently grateful, right? And so I thought, well. 
it was all there, and he didn't really know it was there. Right. But they knew it was there. Yeah, yeah. And they knew that he was coming at them at exactly the weakest point of their uh, belief system. And they went after his jugular, and he was very hurt. He was very – he was sort of destroyed and all this. And so that journey, he was never like anti-American. Like that was the secret. He was a, He was an immigrant kid for whom America was, you know, unambiguously a wonderful – thing. He got his parents spoke Yiddish, his father was a milkman. He you know, he Just he, like John Kasich. Exactly. <laughs> father was a milkman. He ends up Oh sorry, mailman. Sorry. Mail, yeah, but he was a milkman. He ends up, you know, a full scholarship at Columbia at sixteen. He goes to Cambridge. He goes in the army. He comes out, it's sort of like a lot an unimaginable life. What for a country. A Jew. Yeah. Right. What a country. Yeah. And there are all these like and in, as he tells it, like all these quite much more highly born people, waspy people, he's at, he's at, uh, you know, Huntington Hartford's uh, uh, resort in, in in Jamaica and all of this, and and they're all like trashing America, and you know, and that's wrong. Right. What they're doing is wrong, and it's intellectually dishonest. So that's the the other distinction is that is that there was a move from. You know, hostility to, you know, sort of communism to liberalism to anti-liberalism on the part of people like Irving in particular, less mm. Glazer and Bell, who never really went the final step. Or right. Not real. They didn't go the final step. But the other case is that basically neoconservatism was dedicated to the proposition that the United States was the last great hope on earth and that even if you believed that say abortion was a monumental sin and that the liberal that the legalization of it and the liberal abortion regime we had is it was a terrible thing America was still the greatest country on earth and you trash it at your peril and you harm the future of democracy at your peril if you trash it and all of that and i you know i i think that's still true you know the funny thing just to finish on this point you made about the Iraq war and mm. the, the bagel so, snarfing right. of warmongers. So uh, t- Max Boot, for example, who wrote on our blog for a long time, writes for commentary, has really gone kind of to the left in the Trump era as a as a never Trumper and kind of like taken this journey, ideological journey away from the right because he's so horrified by Trump. To be fair to people like Max and Bob Kagan, another sort of neoconservative they were advocates for the Iraq war and they were te- – as the war was going on, as the war was starting, they thought things were go- were going to be a disaster mm-hmm. because we didn't have enough troops. Right. Because we weren't seriously pursuing victory in the right way that – and that we weren't committing more troops to end – to go into the Sunni areas and clean up and try to make sure and that this was going to be very, very bad. So I've always thought that it was incredibly unjust that – Though people defended the mission on moral grounds and practical grounds and and ideological grounds and all this, that practically speaking, the experts among the neoconservatives were very worried from about two weeks into the war that the the post-war was going to be horribly mishandled, which it was. And that's a a part of it that that, uh, our old friend Ken Edelman said that this was just going to be a cakewalk. Right, right. On a TV show once doesn't mean that that was the governing doctrine right. well, of anybody right. on the right, including Bill Crystal, who also thought that there needed to be hundreds of thousands of more troops right. and all that. And nobody was triumphalist about that. 
We didn't put up the Mission Accomplished banner. Neither did National Review. I remember talking to Rich Lowry. He came back from a trip to Iraq, maybe early 2004. That's about right. And he called me and he said, we've just, we've wrecked this place. Yeah. It's rubble. Like the whole, I don't under, you know, this is, you know, it's pretty horrible when you see what's going on there. Like it's, uh, it's very discomforting. All right. Well, okay. On that. (laughs) <laughs> two two things. One, on the previous point about uh, what a country, right? I've, I, I think Yuval Levin was the first person to put this idea in my head. I've basically come around to this position. And because you were part of the select few who have actually read my forthcoming book, you know this. I really think that conservatism at the end of the day just boils down to gratitude for how good we've got it, mm-hmm. right? And what a great country this is. And I think that that – if you have gratitude for the country as it is, that starts you on a movement – rightward in a lot of respects, or it did up until recently. Mm-hmm. And because the second you are grateful for what we've got, you actually want to conserve the good parts rather than just have this fundamental transformation or have this idea of making America great again, right? You have to actually like what we got. And I think that's sort of the essence of of at least my kind of conservatism, which is not nationalism, but patriotism. Right. And the second point I want to make is that we have to express our gratitude towards our sponsors. And this week, and and please stay tuned because in the second half, we're going to talk about more, not more important, but more entertaining stuff like television in the 1970s and whatnot. This week's episode of The Remnant is brought to you by Zip Recruiter. Uh, They are first time uh, advertiser on here. And um, we're grateful, deeply grateful that they are advertising. So the first question I have for you is, are you hiring? Posting your position to job sites and waiting and waiting and waiting for the right people to see it, ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way. So they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These these invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter does not stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, and only right now, remnant listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. For how much? For free. That's right. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Remnant? I don't know why it's not Dingo. It's supposed to be Remnant. I mean, it's supposed to be Dingo, but they say Remnant here. That's right. Uh, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Remnant. ZipRecruiter.com slash Remnant. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, so one of the ironies of this turn rightward among the neocons is that it happened, particularly in your dad's area, in New York when it was at the absolute lowest state in human civilization, right. right? We both grew up in New York City in the 1970s. And while the city around us was becoming a uh, bleak hellhole, I was mugged several times before I turned 12. Four times for me. Yeah. And um, I had to walk six or seven blocks out of my way to walk two blocks to my school because it was mm-hmm. unsafe for me to cross Columbus and Amsterdam. But amidst the roving bands of marauders and 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 all the rest that we had to put up with, there was some truly wonderful television and cinema. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. And um, so, first of all, 
what were your favorite TV shows in the 1970s? Well, we have uh, we have we have we have co- common tastes in this area. I think we are both uh, particularly enamored of The Odd Couple, a New York City uh, sitcom, uh, remarkable in this in the sense that it is was a knockoff derivation, you know, knockoff derivative of a successful play and and movie. And usually, when shows like that were made, they were sort of like. Um, the uh, summer stock versions of the of the show or the movie, like with right. a second rate cast, uh, d- worse than the original cast, and all that. And the Odd Couple was different because it took off. It took these characters off in a somewhat wildly different direction, since they were uh, the play the movie take place over the space of about three weeks, and this is them living together right. so permanently. And this. Um, uh, speaking of New York, like the great New York episodes of The Odd Couple, uh, which are known to all New Yorkers, uh, in part because it was a huge hit in syndication in New York on Channel 11, where it showed for like 20 years. You know, the parking episode, where it's yeah. what it's like to have a car in New York and trying to park it, which was sort of like the 20 years later when Seinfeld did its famous episode where it's just them waiting in a lobby of a Chinese restaurant trying to get in. Right. Effectively, that this was the originating episode of that, which is well, just... But, but also there was the Seinfeld where they had the real char- the black character who parked cars for a living. Yeah. It would move your car to the other side of the street for the yeah. street troopers. That was based on a real guy. We used that guy yeah. in, when I was a kid. Yeah. So I'm saying so the odd couple had that one. Then there was the great sub. Then there was the great one where they're getting mugged all the time. They're on the subway and they have a terrible experience on the subway. But so you know what's odd is if you go back to watch a lot of 70s television now, so much of it is all but unwatchable stylistically. Like it, it looks very primitive, particularly some of the biggest hits like All in the Family, you know, which was on videotape, not film. And uh, even Barney Miller, some other things, and you watch them, and they they look like you're watching a play yeah. from the 1920s on scratchy tape. They're really or something annoying. from Omnibus on CBS. Yeah, you know? It's just very annoying to the eye, and also camera pushes in on people's faces really close, and and the dialogues, the, the soundtrack, they're too loud, the laughing, and all of that. But the Odd Couple, I think, stands up, and a couple of other things stand up. But I love the Odd Couple. I loved. Rockford Files was another uh, great show. And then, of course, we all watched everything, whether right. we liked it or not. Right. I mean, the 4.30 movie for me was appointment television. Yes. And the um, – I'll have to look it up. The name of the flying, flying turtle. Um, uh, Gidra. Gidra, yeah. I, Gidra I, the flying turtle. Um, which was not made by the same studio that did Godzilla, by the way. It's very um, important. That's right. It was a knockoff studio. It was sort of like Marvel and Marvel and DC. Like that's Gidra right. was the DC. That's right. Uh, and and, and, yeah. and and but he was sort of like the Batman of DC because it was like the one good character from the inferior product line. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing I really loved back then were um, disaster movies. You know, you had these like amazing. I mean, that really was the golden age. And it's funny. People talk about superhero movies and how amazing it is that A-list actors appear on in superhero movies. Yeah. There were amazing actors who, I mean, like the Poseidon Adventure yeah. had something like five Oscar winners or something. Who, who or... No, I think the poster said like 14, but a lot of them were like behind the camera, but it was always like, watch 14 Oscar winners come together <laughs> for... Poseidon Adventure was a very important movie to me in some ways because it, it, it opened up a moral dilemma. Uh-huh. So the moral dilemma was, watch Poseidon, it was like, I think I was 10 years old, and I saw it at a movie theater on the Upper, uh, upper West Side, the Symphony, uh-huh. which is now sort of like a performance space. And the thing was, it was like, were you going to be one of the people who, when the ship is hit and turned over, or were you going to be one of the people 
who resourcefully kept calm mm-hmm. and climbed up with the with the hip priest played by Gene Hackman, <laughs> climbed up the side of the ship, and you swam your way through this or that, and like got up to the end. Or were you going to be one of the people who, when it hit, goes like this? Ah! Because if you screamed. You were gonna die. That's like, all. It's it was like wearing a red shirt in Star Trek. You exactly. Just yeah, that's right. You were like, yeah, he's a friend of Jim's from the academy. Like that's <laughs> he's gonna be dead. So if you remained calm, you were gonna live, and if you screamed, you were gonna die. So in my ten-year-old sensibility, this was like, who would I be? Who would I be in that situation? Would I be the brave one, or would I be the one who screamed? And I never, you know, I I really hoped that I would be the brave and resourceful one, but I. I couldn't really be sure. Yeah, I'm not going to speculate on that. But um, uh, one of the best things about the 1970s, which I grew up watching all of that stuff, and was I also grew up, you know, the local, both the local and even the national, you know, film critic types were sort of much more sort of idiosyncratic. I mean, who's the guy who looked like he had not Rex Reed? Was it Rex Reed? The guy who had like oily dark hair, sort of seemed like a matinee idol gay guy. Well, there were, uh, there was Rex Reed. Uh-huh. He was one. There was like uh, in New York, there was this very sardonic, like cynical, creepy guy named Stuart Klein who looked like Woody Allen. Yeah, and he yeah. would be like, "Yeah, I just saw a movie. It's called The Godfather." You know, like that. Yeah. Maybe you want to see it. I don't know. You know, they they did have these weird. It wasn't I, this kind of cheerful. I always remembered him because he pepper. said he saw the Dune movie towards the end of his career, and he says, "Dune looks like it was shot through a soiled diaper." And then he ended his review saying, "Dune is dung." <laughs> <laughs> um, but the 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 dashboard saint, the the god of the, all these things, was of course Gene Shalit. Gene Shalit, who um, I just love dearly, and it would be great to hear like reviews from people like Gene Shalit of. You know, like things like the Poseidon Adventure. I was dorking around on YouTube looking for it, and I just couldn't find it. But what? 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 I'm like, what's that? Oh my gosh! Gene Shalit just oh, walked oh my in. God, Gene Shalit. <laughs> Hello, Mister Shalit. The Poseidon Adventure. On a New Year's Eve cruise, passengers have their world turned upside down when a giant wave flips their ship. Talk about dancing on the ceiling. One moment they're toasting in the new year, and the next they're just toast. Poor Stella Stevens. More like Stella Doro breadsticks. <laughs> but a small group tries making their way out. Ernest Borgnine is a part of this wild bunch. He blames the death of his wife on Gene Hackman, but should he really be unforgiven? The clock is ticking once the ship goes belly up. Speaking of belly up, Shelley Winters delivers a great performance. When she died, I thought Roddy McDowell was going to go ape. <laughs> I loved hearing John Podoritz talk about this movie. Talk about audio commentary. <laughs> anyway, the Poseidon Adventure will have you head over heels. I give it five stars. And if you like this review, you can find more of me on the Substandard, also a part of the Ricochet Audio family. And be sure to check out the newest member of the Ricochet Audio family next week, the Washington Free Beacon Podcast. I also do birthdays, bar mitzvahs, and weddings. Uh, bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, this in the one of the greatest crossover episodes in the history of podcasting. Uh. 
we, without letting the guys at the Weekly Substandard know about this, we brought in Victorino Mattis. I might not be welcome back. <laughs> and we did this mostly to crush the spirits of the guys at the Weekly Substandard, <laughs> but um, also because I am a huge fan of the Gene Shalit oeuvre at the Weekly Substandard, and I thought that was a Stelladoro performance. Oh, thank you. That was a great – you don't see that anymore. The breakfast treats? And do you remember that? The breakfast no, the bre- there's a whole – Any time, right? Stelladoro – was a functioning factory in the Bronx until three years ago when, like all factories in New York City, it finally closed down. And the, yeah, Stellador with these, I have to say, kind of disgusting dried bread yeah, yeah. snacks. So they were, they were sort of, uh, you know, biscotti, I guess, right. was the, but they were biscotti that, yeah, they were biscotti <laughs> that if you ate them, you ended up, like the people on Star Trek when they removed all the moisture from their bodies and they ended up <laughs> as little cubes on the ground. This thing sucked literally every every ounce of water or any liquid in your body up as you bit into it. The breadstick I thought was okay, fine. The breadstick's fine, but the breakfast treat, that big fat S. And you know, you they said, Oh, no cholesterol. There's nothing in it. You know, I mean, there was no flavor in it. But you mentioned Stuart Klein. I'm so happy you did, John, because you know Is our he here too. Uh, no, he's not. <laughs> but, uh, he... I'll do Stuart, <laughs> Klein. Stuart Klein. I'll do. Stuart you need to Klein. do that. You need yeah. to get him on your show. I, that would be very. <laughs> Talk about there were about 11 people left in America who could remember what Stuart Klein. And that was on the original Fox before Fox Channel, Channel 5, 5, right? right? Channel John right. Roland and Metro all Media before Fox owned Channel yeah. 5. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, there were crazy characters on that. Uh, just to talk about. There was this cr- team of um, commentators, like from the left and right, and there was a guy, and I'm blocking, blanking on his name, but he had been a labor reporter, and some labor uh, union thug had thrown acid in oh, his yeah, eyes yeah, and yeah, blinded yeah. him. Victor Ebel, I think, yeah, was his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he came on. He was blind, and so he came on TV with these big, thick, you know, blind glasses, person glasses. Yeah, yeah, blind yeah. person glasses. But every now and then, when he was moving around, because he was very animated when he talked to him, like this, and the glasses would kind of shake, and you could see the kind of scarring under the glasses. So it was kind of like a little bit of a horror movie effect, like you're watching. They, they, they would sort of have like some left-right counterpoint. But the funny thing is, if you go back every now and then and you watch, not the Poseidon Adventure, which, you know, we should all praise. And I actually, I'm, I'm off the reservation on this. I actually like the sequel too, with Telly Savalas and the oh uh, beyond uh, the Poseidon. Yeah, was but, it another cruise ship? No, it's the same one. It turned out they were transporting uh, uh, uranium. Yeah, and so these terrorists, led by Telly Savalas, were going in to get it's it. And, and Michael, no, Michael Caine was Michael Caine. Michael Michael Caine was doing the salvage operation. Right. Telly Savalas was the head terrorist, and he wanted to keep the yeah right. And Telly Savalas wanted the uranium, right? And Michael Caine was just looking for like the stuff in the safe. Right, it was, right, right, right. It was yeah. it was sort of like I think it's where they got the idea for the Titanic. Um, and uh, without terrorists, though. But um, if you go back and you watch some of the seventy late seventies, early eighties movies like Turk One Eighty Two, or what was the one where John Ritter was a superhero um, uh, hero? Wait, something hero? Yeah, and he didn't. Re- he thought he was a superhero, but he. Wasn't it was almost a hero? Um, yes. Yeah, and it was just because he he played some comic book character at birthdays and bar mitzvahs or yeah. something, and then he starts to stop a crime, and then he takes it on himself to become a hero, and he rallies the spirit of New York, which yeah. was still, you know, going through the gutter. Um, but in all those movies, you'll get hero at large. Thank, Thank you, Jack. You'll get these um, 
cameos from the local New York. Like Gabe Pressman probably did yeah. 30 movies <laughs> in the yeah. 70s and 80s. And it's the only place you'll have any sort of, you know, reminder that they existed. But back on the disaster movie thing, you know, Towering Inferno had one of the greatest – it was the cannonball run of Oscar winners, right? I mean, it, it was – Towering Inferno was like – that was that was like the, 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 the summit. That was when – sort of like the moment when suddenly every movie star was on TV. That was like the moment where – the two stars of Towering Inferno were Steve McQueen and Paul Newman. Yeah. And Fred Astaire the, was in it too. But in the same movie, they yeah. were easily the two of the three biggest stars in motion pictures at the time. And one wonders at the at the hell that must have been gone through when they tried to figure out who was going to be on top of who on the poster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it parallel? Do they have their I'm names sure, on each side I'm of the sure. building? Something yeah, like that. Yeah. But um but the Towering Inferno has one of my favorite lines. We're well, I'm Glop, where we often talk about earthquake because mm-hmm. Rob Long loves the movie Earthquake. As and we love Walter Matthau's cameo, un, un, uncredited right. cameo in it. That's right. But he loves earthquake, so we talk about there. But because it has some hilarious lines in it, but there is a hilarious line in the Towering Inferno when this rich couple is like trapped on the you know, above the fire or something like that, and the wife says to her husband. I just I don't know what's going to happen to poor Deanna, you know, our daughter, because she doesn't even know where the key to the safety deposit box is. <laughs> I'm going to totally break precedent here uh-huh. because I never interrupt the actual interview, but I looked up the Towering Inferno poster <laughs> and they are a parallel on the poster, except Paul Newman is like, I don't know quarter of an inch higher <laughs> that, uh, you I, can see a slight difference um which okay but jack you know what that means that was basically three weeks of hostile eight-hour <laughs> <day> negotiations <laughs> where paul newman started out two inches higher and oots down every day <laughs> until his agent said he is not doing this movie unless his name is a little higher than c mcqueen's you can bet that buddy and then they threw in another million dollars or something like that the other great one cast like that is almost insane, which isn't a disaster movie, is A Bridge Too Far. Which yeah, 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 is a, yeah. A Richard Attenborough movie about the you know about Market the Garden, right? And and that movie, I, I mean, I like has twelve Oscar winners. Yeah, in it, has, it has literally everyone in it. Yeah, yeah and it has like Hopkins, like every British actor. And yeah. then it has like and, and sort of in the middle, there is Robert Redford, then really the biggest star in motion pictures, and he is rowing. A canoe or something, a, cro- <laughs> a boat across the, across the river, going like this: "Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail." And that's his entire part <laughs> is him saying the Hail Mary while he's rowing across a river. And I'm sure they paid him five million dollars for that or something for five days. See work. what I what I forgot to do, and I apologize to the listeners because I think it would have worked better. Is when we did the when we went from Gene Shalit to to Vic, I wanted to go. It's why it's podcasting's Victorino <laughs> Madison because that used to be a thing on on TV like and, I, and it was weird I completely forgotten about it and then I, my daughter about when she was m- much younger was really into uh, Scooby Doo uh-huh. and there was this episode where I was watching with her sort of watching with her I was like looking at my phone while she was watching you know and the dream machine is going down some road. And the they, mystery machine. The mystery, the mystery machine. machine. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. And um, and there's a car that's pulled over, and someone's leaned over trying to fix the engine, whatever. And they get out to help, and up pops the cartoon version of 
Don Adams, and um, who played Get Smart for listeners who don't know, and uh, Maxwell Smart, and they they exclaim almost in unison, oh, "It's TV's Don Adams!" <laughs> and then Don Adams goes on to explain how he's in, I think it's like rural Mississippi or something, because he's now also an exterminator. <laughs> <laughs> And, and then it's just off to, to the races pay, to for help his, pay the bills. To help pay the bills, or like he took over his cousin's exterminator well, thing. You know, to go back to Gene, I understand, as Gene mentioned this to me, he tried very hard to find some reference or joke connected to Jack Albertson. But Jack it, Albertson, it was right. very hard. It was going to be something like, you know, right. Jack Albertson, something, something. Talk about Chico and the man, you know, but you couldn't do it. It was very hard. <laughs> well, when, we, when I first pitched this idea to, to Vic, we were. We ran a whole bunch of possible movies, and 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 we decided to trim it back. But I, one the other movie that we talked about you doing was Gandhi. Was Gandhi, and I was really kind of looking forward. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Hurrying favor. <laughs> Talk about a passage to India, you know. I got one for Jack Albertson. Okay. Okay. How about this? In this case, Grandpa doesn't kick the bucket. You don't oh. get it. He played Grandpa Bucket. Oh, Charlie Bucket. Oh, of course. And Willy Wonka. Wonka. Factory, Very good. So I'm sorry. Okay. Very so good. I, no, that's that good. wasn't that good. An awful movie I saw as a kid, thanks to HBO, which my parents had, called Dead and Buried. You know this movie? Oh, I do. And he played a mortician. Plays a mortician. There's a shot. There's a notorious shot in Dead and Buried, which was the great, like, gross-out shot of all time where he, he stabs an eyeball with a, yes. with a hypodermic needle. Oh, I don't. I don't and think so I ever you, saw it. So if you were like, you were in the theater, it was going. Oh. People were going. Don't do it! Don't don't don't, don't put the needle yeah. in the eyeball. It, it's a guy that in a body cast. Nandalu, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that was cut. That cut it right. That was Buñuel. He yeah. cut the eyeball. This was a hypodermic. Yeah. Because the guy's in a body cast, so he's yeah. helpless. Yeah. You know, so all you see is the eye. Yeah. You know, and, so it's funny, like a uh, uh, Willy Wonka, which I loved and I still love, but when I was a little kid. It, there were some scary moments. The the tunnel, the tunnel, yeah, really yeah. kind All of freaked me out. And I, I I took the fizzy lifting drink scene yeah. pretty damn seriously as a little kid. And you drank a lot of. Uh... Yeah. No, no, I was just worried about being eaten oh. by the propellers. Yeah. Did I just end. say that Roald Dahl was a horrible person? Yes, and aside from being a monster and anti semite, and he was in a you know he he was horrible to his wife Patricia Neal when she had a stroke. You read Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. This is a book about torturing children. It's a book in which these children – it's a weird thing with English literature because American literature is not like this. But English literature for children is basically a litany of tortures and torments of children. The English love to take a child say, you're a nasty child, so I'm going to turn you into a blueberry and then destroy you. It's like yeah, – that, that, there's, I mean, there's a big European tradition of in the grim stuff, right? Yeah, you know, oh, yeah. like in – you know, there are those scenes in the the American version of The Office where Dwight Schrute does these nursery rhymes about chopping off kids' fingers yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And my daughter was fascinated by it and went and looked them up. And they're all real. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they're dark as Eating hell. babies. Yeah. You know, yeah. Things that happen like that. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's all this, like, children, don't be bad. <laughs> because then, you know, or like, little, you know. Most of those nursery rhymes James were originally and... really friggin' dark. I yeah. mean, uh, Hansel yeah. and Gretel is dark. You right. Know? Yeah. But... What made me think about this was, in terms of 70s movies, um, or early 80s, you guys will know the date, my parents, for some god-awful reason, took me to see Harold and Maude oh. in the theater. And That's that- awkward. Yes. And my, they Whoa. immediately regretted it. And I, to this day, I can't rewatch it, because yeah. I'm, just, I'm just terrified yeah. of- 
all of it. I wanted to ask, John, uh, did you see the Poseidon Adventure in the theater? Oh, yeah. Sure. I was, was there Sense Around? 11? Or... No, Sense Around was That came out Earthquake. with Earthquake. Yeah, which I, Earthquake I, I, I did have the Sense Around. Yeah. It was kind of awesome. Yeah, all, all Sense Around was was like a bass line, was like a loud bass line. Mm-hmm. Right, they basically recall. turned a speaker onto the floor. <laughs> yeah. And so the bass way up. Right, so go like that. No, that I mean, I saw... Movie? Do you remember, like, the first movie in the theater as, as when you were... I remember the first... I remember the first movie I remember seeing, oddly enough, was with Roddy McDowell. Oh. It was called Bullwhip Griffin. This is a family podcast. Um, it is actually <laughs> called Bullwhip Griffin, and I just want to point out that it was 20 years before Maplethorpe, so uh-huh. you can't put Rodney... Uh, Roddy McDowell and Maplethorpe and the Bullwhip together, though I'm sure you could have at any point in Roddy's life. Wasn't he also in Caligula? He was in Caligula. Yeah, so that's but, so Bullwhip Griffin is about a British – was about an English butler who goes to be somebody's butler in, you know, like in 19th century Arizona. And he gets off the train and then it turns out that he – you know, the, the guy's not there and he has to deal with bad, bad guys. It was, I think, one of those horrible Disney – Comedies of the mid '60s when Disney, when if you wanted to torture children, Mm. you would have a birthday party and everybody would go to see one of these horrible Disney comedies, and the kids would all start throwing popcorn at the screen because even they knew it was like (laughs) the computer wore tennis shoes. That was a I remember that that was with Kurt Russell. That was one. So that's the first movie that I remember. The first movie that I remember loving that sort of turned me into a movie fan was Patton. Oh. In the theater. In the theater. Yeah. It was Patton, which somehow, and I think I was nine, and I don't know why it did this to me, but I just, it gripped me, and I was, you know, like, yeah. my kids, I have a 13-year-old, I've never seen a movie as adult, even now, I've never seen a movie as adult as Patton, let's yeah. say, certainly not in a movie theater, um, that's simply a movie about grown-ups and, right. you know, something, a war and thing, yeah. things going on in a war, but that was that was the movie that got... But I kept getting – I got taken to these awful, giant, dead musicals. That was a big thing of the late 60s when I was, you know, like my kids at 7, 8. You would go see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Mm-hmm. Which or was, uh, had some horrible. Dark stuff in it. Very too. dark, but also yeah. just boring and horrible. Extremely or, long. Yeah. yeah. And Hello, Dolly, which was horrible and extremely long. And Paint Your Wagon, which oh. was horrible and extremely long. And you know, this is like what killed the musical for 30 yeah. years because – what happened was Sound of Music came out. It, it was the second most successful movie ever made. So it was like, make any musical right, into right. a three-hour movie. Yeah. Make Camelot, which is agonizingly bad. You know, just 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 do it, and then it'll all be great. And so, you know, basically everybody's like, a musical, get yeah. this away from me. I don't want to see it. We that, talked about this on right. Glop a little bit, but West Side Story deserves some of the blame, too. Simply, yeah. I, I, just, I tried to rewatch that recently. And just no, it's hard. It. It's absolutely horrible. When you talk about the uh, sitcoms from the 70s that you like, and obviously the odd couple holds, I mean, it's still enjoyable to this yeah. day. Is anything from Gary Marshall watchable now from his 70s? I don't know. It's a good question. I assume that uh, that um, what is striking about TV uh, in the then is that so TV was so much the dominant medium that a flop show had twice the audience of a hit show now, right? right. So, so all these terms. So, and oddly enough, it's like they didn't care about quality or. They didn't. They they had a completely different understanding of what 
of what that meant. So I, to my experience, once in the last 10 years, I saw an episode of Happy Days. Now, Happy Days wasn't good even when it was a big hit. Like, I don't think it was very good. It, no one thought it was – no one the thought The golden age was, of Happy Days was when I was a kid and, right, and yeah. I liked Happy Days. No, you loved because Happy Days. But I'm saying no one, no one would have said – Boy, this is a really good show. You know, this is just a terrific show. I mean, yeah. maybe it's not for you, but it's a terrific show. It was sort of labored and on fun, you know. And but I mean, I watched it, and it was a little like watching a a Christmas pageant with kid your kids in it, or because or like the audience watching in the studio because it's like. Oh, it's Ralph Melf, and there's a huge ovation everybody gets, when Ralph Melf comes on, I, I, and like everybody freezes in place so that Donnie Most could like go, you know, like wave at the camera, and then it's like, why it's Potsy, and then there's a huge, and then it's always like, when are we going to go to Al's? And merely the mention of Al's, yeah, yeah, yeah. so like there pause. is no, there's no pace to it because it's just you know. Maybe Fonzie's gonna kiss her. Ooh. Yeah, well, <laughs> like the audience is like half of the show. It's also funny that like, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure in this Me Too moment that some of Fonzie's stuff would oh. play very well. Oh my you know, God. And, I can't even. But I, I have to say, you know, two things about Happy Days. One, the episode where Richie and the Fonz try to get to build the self esteem of Richie's cousin by giving him something special about himself, and they convince him. And keep on, all these characters are like in their late twenties, supposed to be teenagers, yeah. right? And they they convince him that he because he's got fast hands, like he caught a fly or something, that he can beat the world record for stacking coins on his elbow <laughs> and then flipping his arm forward and catching the coins. And that episode came out when I was, I think, first grade, maybe second grade, something like that. The next day, there were just pennies flying. Yeah. All across my grade school, because yeah. every every guy who just wanted to do that. And to this day, I still yeah. can do it, you know, because they watched it. They all watched it. Everybody watched it. What else did you ABC watch? on what, a yeah. Tuesday or whatever yeah. it was. You know what I remember from Happy Days that I always thought at the time was a great gripping episode was the fire at Arnold's. Oh. Oh. Remember who was, yes. you remember who was to blame? Was it Chachi? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. He left the grease thing on. He forgot to turn off the burners. Right. And you know, if they'd sent him to jail, he never would have molested Nicole Eggert. Say. <laughs> and he never I, would have endorsed Donald Trump. That's right. That's true. <laughs> he was blown away. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, Gene just came back in. It was amazing. <laughs> no, I don't know. It's it, but there is that there is this weird quality of these shows that you know you remember them and they mean a lot to you, and then you don't want to revisit them too much right. because they just won't they won't have that. That the other the the most hilarious thing about Happy Days, though, I have to say, the most hilarious thing is the fact that this shrimpy little Jewish kid from Yale plays right the street tough Arthur Fonzarelli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he got that role because of Lords of Flatbush, right? And that's right, how they cast right. Him for it. But <laughs> he is, he is, he's. Five two, <laughs> you know. I mean, the, you one know, of the reasons why he wore the boots, yeah. right? Because, his uh, <laughs> his his great role before Fonzie, aside from Lords of Flatbush, was he was on this episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore, one of the great running gags on Mary Tyler Moore is that she always had terrible parties. Right, her parties were always terrible. So this was like the first party, and like. Uh, Rhoda brings this guy over to the party because she feels sorry for him. 
because he just got fired, and it's Henry Winkler. And then she keeps introducing him to people, and she says, you know, this is Joe. And they say, how are you, Joe? And he's like, I just got fired. <laughs> like every – his only line of dialogue in the show is, I just got fired. And then he like takes a plate of food and he goes and he sits in a corner by himself and he sort of eats the plate of food. And that was the real Henry Winkler. Right. Like not this, you know, this, you know, shrimpy Jewish guy who yeah, was yeah. like the kid who was going to beat everybody up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that is line, that yeah. is pretty hilarious. And he had mystical powers. On yeah, the by the end, he yeah. really had, I mean, he fought. He was a superhero. He fought Mork and a holly tacker to a draw, yeah. Yeah. which was huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. One of the great spinoff episodes you know of all time um in fact i was crossed with the weekly stub standard guys at some point uh, why a month or two ago mm-hmm. you had an extended conversation about and i actually i texted john about mm-hmm. it where you had this extended cross uh, conversation about spinoffs and crossovers yes. and whatnot yeah. and you didn't mention i think anything from the happy days universe oh i can't imagine i would have left that and it was shocking that's to that's me really that's where laverne and shirley and Joni was I, and more and, and Mindy, and I, I don't want to slander you, but it was something like that. Uh, I don't anyway, know. okay. I do want to switch gears because we are running long on this. I made a mistake on Twitter. Well, I have to be more specific. Um, one of the mistakes I recently made on Twitter was we were talking about being uh, on Twitter. It was being on Twitter, right? <laughs> yeah, so it's sort of like the second you find yourself in a Tijuana brothel, you know, <laughs> you, you all yeah. all. Subsequent mistakes are downstream of the initial mistake of being there in the first place. So, okay, stipulated. But um, I, uh, we're we're talking about great TV detectives, and I said I'm going to come out with a definitive list of great TV detectives on Monday. It is we're recording this on Thursday. Said list has not been comprised. This right? is just like this is just like Trump's in uh, two weeks fake news. <laughs> Awards. Awards that were going to come on Monday and then they never happen. Like you're just – this is more declinism. So we're not going to hash out here in in real time the definitive list. But while thinking it through in my copious free time, it occurred to me that one of the things you have to do is actually have two lists. You have to have lists of – because obviously Jim Rockford is the greatest detective of all time, right? But he's a P.I., Mm-hmm. Right, so you have to distinguish police detectives yes. from PIs. Very important. And if you if you don't do that, it's just it becomes a complete muddle. What about Barnaby Jones? Yeah, you know, what about Mannix? What about you know? I mean, there, um, you know, and then if you get really serious about it, Andre Brower on Homicide mm-hmm. was amazing, right? And um, and then you have the heart, you know, which guy? Forget Barney Miller. Which guys out of that squad you leave off the list or where you put them? So anyway, you you now have carte blanche to name in no particular order because yeah. this is unfair for me to spring this on you guys. Your favorite TV police detectives and your favorite detectives. All right. Well, I would say uh, my uh, – obviously, I would say the favorite police detective is Columbo. I don't think there mm-hmm. could be any uh, – I mean, Columbo is – the most uh, successful, I would say, and long-running detective show of all. Like they were still making Columbo's until the year before Peter Falk's death, right. like thir- forty years after it had debuted. You know, and I think we have to keep ourselves to TV, right? Right. You can't right. no Sherlock Holmes, right. no, no, so no, no, Columbo, no. and of course Columbo, uh, and it really is true. You know, it was it was said, and people thought so that you know, Columbo. Uh, was based on uh, the character of Porfiry Petrovich in Crime and Punishment. Uh-huh. Um, 
guy who sort of busts Raskolnikov for being a murderer. And I just happened to read Crime and Punishment last year. And it is really startling. And to think now that... Does he keep coming into the room saying, oh, one last pretty thing? Pretty much. <laughs> it was like, you know, he's shambling and kind uh-huh. of ill-dressed, but, you know, and sort of playful. And it, Raskolnikov thinks he's smarter than him. And it turns out that he's not. But, you know, thinking about it now, the people that I know who work in television, who does like, like they never heard of Dostoevsky, much right, less right, right, could right. have based a character on him. So that's one one thing. I would say he's he's easily the greatest uh, police detective. And I'd be also very partial to, um, I can't remember his name, but David Caruso's character in the yeah. first season of NYPD Blue. Although which I, is, I liked Sipowitz better, but I get it, right? Right. Um, but I think he was, a, as a detective character. Yeah, no, he was fantastic. He was in this, you know, that... That, uh, that first season was, was amazing. just astounding. And, you know, the show ran for 10 years based on its fumes, in yeah. my view. Yeah. Because there, we'd never really seen a show that grippingly i mean it was a sort of a moral uh melodrama right yeah. about you know this guy kept busting people for the wrong reasons and was it okay that they got arrested for a crime when he figured out that they were innocent of the crime because he knew that they'd done something else for which he didn't have right. evidence right. and right. was that okay and that was pretty good so those, those would be the two that i can think of and of course mrs colombo Yes. Okay. Yes. Mrs. was one of the great uh, and, Kate Colombo and Belker from Hill Street Blues. Oh, we don't need to get into that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I find it hard to make that distinction between police detective and then the private detective because that area was really not my area of interest. Watching uh-huh. TV growing up, I liked Magnum. Uh huh. Well, but you know, and yeah. and and, and uh, but really, uh, the rest of my uh, childhood was uh, spent watching every episode of Three's Company. <laughs> so I, I can't. And Jack Tripper solved by the end of the show. I, he pretty much solved the misunderstanding. The occasional misunderstanding. Uh, John Ritter, I have to say, played a de- police detective on a horrible show called Hooperman. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Which was yeah. a sitcom, a light sitcom, which he played a police detective. And as John knows, I have a soft spot in my heart for Ten Speed and Brown Shoe. Oh, well, I... Ben Vereen okay. and uh, Jeff Goldblum. Ten Speed and Brown Shoe had one of the great pilots. And I mm. think it aired, it was like one of the first things that aired after the Super Bowl or something like that. 1908, late 70s or something like that, Jeff Goldblum and Ben Vereen, and the pilot was staggeringly good, and the series was garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But not, like, not, that was the... Not to 11-year-old Jono. I know, but, but no, but the, but the <laughs> pilot was just was just great, and Jeff Gold, just having Jeff Goldblum Jeff. star in a show on TV, yeah, you know, right. like... That's already miles better than most. I, I I will tell you when I remember when I was in fifth grade, there was a show I really did like called Hardcastle McCormick. I remember Hardcastle McCormick. Hardcastle McCormick. Brian Brian Keith. Brian Keith. Yeah. And the other guy <laughs> who was Brian like the racer. Keith, who he was like, like doing three, time. Like and he three, had to work with the judge. Yeah. But there was all that. There were there were all these weird shows where it's like there's an ex-con who solves crimes or you know right. like which Rockford sort of was but. Right. But um, it's always like a cop teams up with somebody that he arrested that they solve crimes or something like that. Which was sort of what the yeah. exact plot of 48 Hours was. Right, right? exactly. Right. Um, um, so it occurred to me, and, 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 th- and it's weird. I don't know why it popped into my head, but if, if, if not here, then when and where. And this is in no way a reference to the very serious story about, the, uh, about Rob Porter accused of, of beating his wife. Um, wives. Wives. But I was recently watching... And you don't have to think of an alter, uh, of an answer to this, but I was recently watching The Verdict with Paul Newman. Mm-hmm. Great movie, I think. And um, it dawned on me that that may have been the last movie ever made by Hollywood where the protagonists 
strikes a woman and you were supposed to root for the protagonist where it's okay that he hits the woman. And I'm trying to think, if, is, has there ever been one more recent than that? And I can't, I've been thinking about it for a while now. Um, it's easier to go backwards. Like I immediately think of Michael Corleone in part two mm-hmm. with, with Kay after she talks about the abortion. Right. But I can't think of anyone and, after that. Well, but this, this, this gets into the whole neoquan you know, <laughs> traditional conservative thing. Right. Was he right to hit K? Yeah. <laughs> right. no. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna right. touch that one. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah. I cannot. You know, I can't. I. It's a very interesting question. Yeah. I, I can think of sort of jokey stuff. Sure. Sure. Like you know, the adventures of Ford Fairlane with Andrew Dice Clay. Though I don't know if he he actually hits a woman, but he all but. I'm it's sure a safe he, bet. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> There's, of course, Quentin Tarantino, as we now know, seriatim choking women in yeah. Kill Bill and in uh, Inglorious Bastards himself personally. But um, the verdict is interesting because it's a very left-wing movie by a left-wing director written by David Mamet, who uh, is now like the most right-wing person right. on, on earth. And it's a movie about evil insurance company or, you know, evil law firms and evil insurance company. And the and the, the wayward Catholic Church. And the wayward Catholic Church. That's right. right. And and so it would be interesting to know what Mamet himself thinks of the verdict yeah. now 35 years later. I mean, it's a pro – you're right. It's definitely a pro-trial lawyer movie, which – Yeah. But it's a much better one than any of that Grisham garbage, right? right? Yeah. I read uh, a book by Sidney Lumet who directed it, and I remember its sort of detail of it, which is that it is a movie from which they banned – the color, you know, this is one of the ways in which movies are incredibly artificial, even when they look like they're not artificial. So there is no blue in the verdict. Hmm. They remove the color blue from the verdict. He liked to do that. He did it in Dog Day Afternoon, apparently. He didn't want the color blue. And so there's one moment where you see the sky and it's blue. But other than that, the color blue is nowhere to be seen. So you that you can control the environment such. And this is before special effects. Yeah, yeah, really. yeah. That you can basically remove an entire primary color from the color palette of a of a movie. That's good trivia. Yeah. That's better that... than the last woman punched in a movie. No, no, <laughs> the last woman punched in a movie is much better, <laughs> much, much, much better. All right. Well, um, I mean, I could do this for a while longer, but I would just say this other thing about the verdict, which is interesting, because I, I wrote about Paul Newman uh, when he died. And the interesting thing about Paul Newman is that he was always playing these morally compromised or problematic. He's an alcoholic in in uh, you know in the verdict. Uh, he's uh, you know he's like a, a, a wife beater, girlfriend beater, and HUD barn burner in the long hot summer. He's always like playing a morally compromised person, and he was the perfect person to play a morally compromised person because you looked at him, and you're like. Oh, he's so nice. <laughs> he's just such a – he's so much fun to watch. He's so cute. And he's basically – So good looking. He's basically Jesus in – um, in basically No Man Can Eat 50 Eggs. Um, uh, cool Hand Luke, right. Cool Hand Luke, right. Yeah. But so he's a prisoner in that and the other right. thing. And so there were two things that I remember I was very proud of noted, noting in this piece about Newman, one of which was that he was just so incredibly good looking and that he had this, and he was quite slight. Actually, yeah. he was sh- he was small and slight, but that he had this incredibly low, gravelly voice, and that that undercut the prettiness. Like yeah. the voice was the key to understanding why he could play these people with such authority, or who might seem kind of violent and all that. But in the end, you just you couldn't help liking him. So no matter what role he was playing, he just brought this innate, insane likability. 
to you know whatever it was he did. And no, I think that's right. And it's it's in that way. And don't jump down my throat when I say this. It's very similar to George Clooney, except George Clooney makes a lot of bad movies. Yeah, but you just like just like George Clooney on screen. Yeah, you know? and it's amazing to me how bad he is at picking scripts or are or, or delivering because he had the opportunity to be the Paul Newman, yeah. I think, of his generation. And quick name three, you know, after Ocean's Eleven, name yeah. some good George Clooney movie. Up in the air. I like that. It's, oh, that no, was, it's good, but I, I don't think of, it's not that memorable. But His, I, uh, his action movie, uh, Peacekeeper, Peacemaker, whatever that was. Was it with Nicole Kidman? Yeah, which yeah. was not bad. I, I can't even remember what it was. Was that the one where there was, they were on a bus Serbian, and the bus blew up? Uh, it was like a, a Serbian terrorist, I think, was connected right. to but it. Was a bus, did a bus blow up? Quite possibly. No, you're but thinking it's not of, the, no, 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 But it's not thinking, the bus that blows up after 55 not, miles. No, no, not that You're thinking of the... Uh, the interpreter. No, you're the, thinking something or other. The Denzel Washington movie, um, which was the most anti-Islamic terrorism movie, oh, the Siege, the yes. Siege that Hollywood siege. ever made. That's right, because it came out before nine eleven. That's right. Remember, mm-hmm. I think Moravchik wrote about it in commentary and about how, like, you could never make the left wouldn't let you make that movie afterwards because then you're actually worried about Islamic terrorism, so it'd be bigoted to do it. Yeah. True Lies. Yeah, another, True Lies is another one. True Lies is, yeah. Although I have to say, I watched True Lies on a plane like six months ago, and it is so horribly misogynistic. Yeah, yeah. It what is, he does to his wife in that is it disgusting. Is vile. The movie yeah. is, yeah. honestly, the movie, And we, uh, at the time it was like, oh, there's so much fun, lively, light-spirited comic action adventure movie, and it's like, I was so disgusted by it. Watching, sitting on a plane, watching it, I couldn't believe. It. I was like, "How did I not notice this?" Although then Schwarzenegger punches Tia Carrera in that. Oh, there you go. So well, there you go. Jamie Lee Curtis does. Yes, maybe that's going right. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but one of the other great outrages of that movie, of course, was the uh, Metro at Georgetown Park. That still hasn't happened yet. Oh, but the, the, the no, but that's also a, no, no. The best one. <laughs> the best. No, no, that's no way out. No way out is the best. Fake Washington geography. That's right. That's in terms of, uh, for listeners who don't understand, and I, I, and I want to congratulate John because one of John's quirks on on his own podcasts is to constantly explain things that don't need to be explained to the listening audience. Like uh, the 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 the, the nay plus ultra of this was when we did a special with Sunny Bunch, a special Game of Thrones podcast, and John kept stopping to say, "Okay, now." Danny Targaryen. We have to explain to the readers, listeners, who Danny. Tar- and it's like no one who's listening to this needs the explanation about any of the the, the Game of Thrones. I thought stuff. they did because I was listening while we were doing that podcast, and I didn't understand half of what you guys were saying. And I've read all the books and seen every episode of the show. That's fine, but okay. But anyway, so um, uh, one of the things in Washington that and, and New York that people like to do a lot, and I'm sure if you, it's like in L.A. You watch and you like watch the twenty four the TV series right and you see someone get from downtown out to Burbank yeah. in four minutes you know to yeah. defuse a bomb continuity problems where people go from one place to another place in a movie in ways that are physically impossible and yeah. No Way Out is the most famous one right, right. where you go from Georgetown to Pentagon City yeah. right, without ever getting any conveyance of any kind yeah. he yeah. ran over that bridge to Roslyn so fast to get to the metro <laughs> yeah uh, all, no, but, although the, this actually shows up on the remnant bingo card. Um, well, I'm going to talk about this after you guys leave. Okay. But in the Warriors, there's a terrible continuity problem where they get from 96th Street to 14th Street. No, to 72nd Street oh, yeah. oh. by the Papaya King without ever actually getting on the subway. Right, right. Um, well, my favorite, actually, this is talk about it. This is a real weird Upper West Side thing, which is so minor that you can barely stand it. But 
there's a the movie called The Goodbye Girl, which was a huge hit in the mid seventies. Richard Dreyfus won an Oscar for it, and it's about uh, people living on the Upper West Side. And there's a scene where two people are in. I think they're in a they're in a horse uh, drawn carriage or something, you're going up Broadway, or they're in a car or something like that. And the scene goes on for five minutes, and you as you're looking through the window. They're on 83rd Street. Then they're on 72nd Street. Then they're on 96th Street. Then they're on 78th Street. Because they're just driving around doing the scene over and over again then taking the best moments and, you know, cutting them together, which is totally normal. But there were like – when I saw it and I saw it on the Upper West Side in a movie theater, everyone's going, oh, come on. (laughs) The only other story, and then I'll finish with this, is I went to see You've Got Mail. Remember You've Got Mail? Okay, so You've Got Mail, also a movie set on the Upper West Side. So there is a scene in You've Got Mail. We're all sitting. We're sitting on the Upper West Side in a theater called the Lincoln Square on 68th and Broadway. And we're in auditorium number one. And so to get into auditorium number one, you hand in your ticket, you turn right, you go into the theater, and you, you sit down. Because there are 12 auditoriums, something like that. And so in the middle of You've Got Mail, Meg Ryan and her boyfriend, uh, Greg Kinnear, walk into the Lincoln Square Theater, hand their tickets, walk through, turn right into the auditorium that we are all in, go in and sit down. And the audience bursts into <laughs> wild applause. <laughs> something could only have happened in that theater at that moment. Nobody else would have cared. It meant people were like, oh my God, is that what is that? She's gonna come in. And then it was like, yay! <laughs> it's solid. The, the, the solipsism of, make, yeah. of living somewhere where they, they film movies. It's almost literally a New Yorker cartoon. Yeah, it is. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, we've gone long, and I want to thank you guys for coming to do this. Thank you. And uh, um, hopefully, we'll have more wacky cameos on the Remnant podcast in the future. Uh, everyone who listens to this who doesn't listen to Glop or doesn't listen to the Weekly Substandard or doesn't listen to the Commentary Podcast, you should remedy that only if it doesn't come out of your remnant listening time. But otherwise, they're great podcasts, and these are great guys, and thank you for coming, guys. Well, thank, thank you. you. I'm really happy to be on your nice niche podcast. It's really a nice nice little podcast you have here, and I'm really you know, speaking as someone who has a much larger, much more impressive, much, much, much more popular podcast than you, I'm really happy to come down <laughs> yeah. and visit you here if, if, in your in your tidy little precinct. Speaking of solipsism, <laughs> if only if only there were some objective metrics to back up these bald faced claims. Uh, you know, I don't think we live in a new era in which I I don't need metrics because the metrics the ground game is in our hearts, uh-huh. Jonah. Our the metrics are, the are most, in our, our hearts. Our fans, of course, the substandard fans are the ones who will kill themselves if we tell them to. They'll actually do it. So we have the most dedicated, I would say that. Uh, I see. So <laughs> the popularity was in your hearts all along. That's right. That's right. The commentary uh, magazine podcast listeners will, you know, uh, go see the doctor if we tell them to. You know, if we say go get a checkup, <laughs> you know. Or, you know, maybe, you know, may eat, eat a little something, have some soup. They'll do that. So I think they're pretty dedicated also. All right. Thank you, guys. This was fun. All right. So uh, John Podoritz, uh, Gene Shalit, and Vic Mattis have all left the building, and it's just me and Jack now. Jack, do we have any uh, housekeeping that we need to do? Uh, I wouldn't know if this is housekeeping. It's almost like other people have installed new furniture f- for us. <laughs> Someone has created a remnant bingo. 
And I was pretty impressed with it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm most impressed with the fact that this just sort of fell in our laps and we didn't have to ask for it. Yeah, no, I like that. We like, these are the animal, the organic, spontane- as Hayek would say, spontaneous order of uh, uh, fan culture emerging. And I was just, you just passed this thing to me and I've been looking at it. And I like it. We will post it on um, the Twitter feed, which is at uh, Jonah Remnant at, on Twitter. But there are some, there are some problems with it. I'll just read some of these. I mean, obviously, uh, Jack Butler's ball gag deserves to be on here. But um, as long as it's not on me. Uh, trashing the commentary podcast, we covered that. I very rarely talk about not knowing how to buy pants. That's what other people do because they think it's original and clever. And, and for the reference, it never is. Um, references to previous books, I guess that's fair. Alaska references and or zombies, fair. But speaking of fair, it says here, the lovely Jessica. I never say the lovely Jessica, though she is lovely. I refer to her and have for now 17 years as the fair Jessica. Yeah, the, the creator, people have already sufficiently pilloried the creator of this bingo for that mistake on Twitter. And he is, he is uh, remorseful. And Pippa, Dingo, William F. Buckley Jr., these are all fine. I don't mention the couch that much. Maybe I should. I should mention more German words, but that's some here. Uh, Sidney Blumenthal. I don't mention him that often, in part because if you say his name three times, you just get reduced into a sulfuric ash. Um, well, we better keep count then. <laughs> <laughs> um, George Nash book, that's fair. Tripping.com, love them as an advertiser, but, you know, we have other advertisers. Ben Sass is a guest. He has not been a guest on this podcast for um, like 15 episodes or something. Right? Yeah, he's been off Twitter too. He's, he's, uh, tw- Twitter fasting for whatever reason. Maybe he's like on a three-state killing spree. Um, I would like to – I think the tw- the Tripping.com – is Tripping.com just a square on there yeah. in itself? I think you should replace that score with making a drug joke about Tripping.com. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That would be a good one. Rank punditry is fair. Uh, it has Demi-Jew from the Upper West Side, but obviously I actually say pseudo-intellectual Demi-Jew from the Upper West Side. Um, talking about booze, totally fair. Bigfoot erotica, okay, but – I think that the, the as a as a as an artifact of remnant podcast fandom, it's a good first start, but it could use more refining. Um, but I do want to sort of mention something, you know, and this is in the realm of um, just pure self-aggrandizing promotion for this podcast. Well, I don't want anyone to go overboard with it, and I don't want it to become a silly thing and all the rest. But if people tweet positive feedback, particularly if it seems sincere and not some sort of BS or bogus thing, it's very likely that I will retweet it. And I want to encourage, that's another place, you know, reviews on iTunes are great. Please have more of them. But if you like this podcast and you follow me on Twitter, you follow um, our now totally self-aware Twitter feed at Jonah Remnant on Twitter, and you have some feedback, comments, questions, concerns, and you want to Maybe get retweeted by my into my two hundred eighty thousand followers. You know, maybe say something on there. I'll just be mercenary about it. And it's it's much likelier that the Remnant Podcast Twitter account will retweet you than that Jonah will. I mean, Jonah's pretty good at it, but the Remnant Podcast Twitter account exists solely to promote the show. It, That's right. I I will I will call I will skim the cream of the retweets from uh, the Remnant Twitter feed and do that uh, because the whole point of this is to become. The Mobutu Sese Seiko of podcasting. And as those of you who don't know, Mobutu Sese Seiko, his full name is uh, translated into English as the all conquering rooster who breathes fire in his wake and destroys all his enemies or something like that. Yeah. Um, we'll skip the uh, the Greg Zawicki, who's a follower or a listener, 
uh, remnant drinking game for another time because we're really running along with all of this. Is there anything else that we need to get at? Uh, so the, the creator of the bingo, I've, I found his name, but it, I'm not sure if I'll pronounce it correctly, so sorry, Alex uh, Murasanu. If if I if I butchered that, but we appreciate your efforts on on this podcast's behalf. We do, and oh, one last thing. I've been plugging the my forthcoming book, The Suicide of the West, on uh, in the G file, and uh, it it you know and it's translated into a bunch of pre orders, which I'm very grateful for. If you're listening to this and don't read listen and don't read the G file, and you're inclined to uh, buy my book. Uh, you are a great and noble person, and I am eternally grateful for you. Uh, one of the reasons why I agreed to do this podcast was I thought it would be a useful platform to help promote the book. And I want to sort of just say that if since you get this for free, if you figure every podcast you listen to is worth 75 cents and you're not inclined to visit one of our sponsors, which you should, um, you've already basically gotten – the cover price of the book, you know, paid covered for this. So again, it's on Amazon. You can see my new author photo where I'm at my cigar shop smoking a cigar um, at Amazon. And uh, thanks very much. Anything else, Jack? I can't think of anything, really. All right. So we'll be back next week with another exciting, maybe we'll have another cameo from some other great figure from the past. You know, little known secret, We've had Marcel Marceau here many times. You just haven't heard him. But that's neither here nor there. And thanks again for listening.